This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance. Good to be with you today. And I want to talk today on the Equip Podcast about a few thoughts on the spiritually deadly danger of having too much. The dangerous uh, position we're in, particularly in the modern Western world, of the disease of what I'm calling excess. You know, some people have called it, you know, first world versus third world problems. If you're in the third world, your problems are access to the basic material goods of living, whether it's food, water, or shelter. But in the first world, our problems are, I don't have fast enough internet connection, or, you know, maybe my iPhone isn't the latest model, or my car isn't quite as nice as it could. They're not life-threatening problems, but they're problems of excess. It's where we have so much that our taste buds have been dulled to what should be ordinary, and we become to begin to become dissatisfied with ordinary pleasures of life. It's reflective of actually, in some ways, the wisdom that you read about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Think of Solomon in Ecclesiastes as like the modern man in pursuit of more and more and more, where in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says, I'm going to test myself with pleasure and enjoy what's good, but finds that to be foolishness and folly, vanity. Hevel is the, the Hebrew word, where it's kind of fleeting, like a mist, a, a smoke, or a vapor. It, the next, Solomon tests out achievements. It says he built houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and reservoirs. He cried, acquired more and more and more possessions, surpassed everyone before him, gave himself everything he wanted. But at the end, Ecclesiastes 2.11 says, when I considered all I had accomplished, what I'd labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind, to be hevel. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He gives himself to wisdom, to work, to all of these pursuits. In other words, the problem that Ecclesiastes grapples with is the utter futility of getting more and more and more. It's a reflection of a disease that we see often in the modern world, the disease of too much. And I want you to consider this. In human history, that's a fairly unique disease to encounter. Like in human history, you had, you know, ancient times, certain people like Solomon who had excess, but the majority of people in the ancient world did not have excess food. I mean, they don't have refrigerators to store things. They don't have pantries where they're putting excess giant accumulations of food. The, the normal person in the ancient world struggled to simply survive. Survival was difficult. It wasn't guaranteed. Now our first world problems, we're struggling for the first time, not with the disease of need, but the disease of excess. It's perhaps our greatest threat. What happens when a group of people in the Western world live with excessive food, excessive wealth, excessive information, excessive pleasure for their entirety of their life? What sort of thing does that do to the human soul? Well, I want to reflect a little bit on that today and just give some guidance, both from observations in church history, from the Bible, and from observations I have in the next generation of upcoming college students, young people that we're seeing, that I hope will warn us against the dangers of excess, but also maybe point us to maybe a little bit of some of the spiritual antidote that we need to administer to our soul in the modern world. So, first let's reflect on church history, then the Bible, then our current generation. So reflection on church history is this. 
over the years have had the privilege of spending a good bit of time reading on uh, the early church fathers, the, all throughout the history of the church. And as you reflect on this, here would be the observation I have. Generally speaking, when the church was most spiritually strong was when the church was socially weakest. So when the church was the early church of Rome, when it was persecuted, that sort of outside pressure of persecution, the fact that they were seen as social outcasts, formed in them kind of an internal conviction about what it meant to be the people of God. In some ways, the temptation is not unlike, you know, what you saw in the children of Israel in the Old Testament. It's when they enter into the land and begin to get satisfied, to think that they've done it all on their own, that they neglect to follow God. They become self-satisfied. The same thing does seem to happen in the, the history of the church when Christianity moves from being the persecuted minority to being the ruling power. Particularly, you think of when it, the, the pivot point of when Constantine, who is then the emperor at the time, converts over to Christianity. What happens is from Constantine forward, our experience of what we could call Constantinian Christianity in the West, or Christendom, where you have Christianity not as a persecuted minority, but kind of as the flagship, powerful state church. Well, with the excess in power, you see corruption. You see a spiritual weakness enter into the church. So even as we walk through the history of the church, many of the movements of monasticism, whether it was the Benedictine monks, the orders of monastic life, those were designed to to basically try to push against the corruption that had entered into the church through power and privilege. You can go read even about some of the popes of the Middle Ages. There's profound systemic corruption happening there. So the point being this, in the history of the church, the observation I have is when the early church was weakest, was in in social status and power, was when it was strongest spiritually. That doesn't mean you just pursue low social status. It just means you need to be on guard because power and privilege have always in the history of the church presented a profound challenge to the Christian faith really flourishing. It's, it echoes, so now let's sh- ch- search from, switch from church history to biblical wisdom. There's an echo to the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels where he says it is easier for a rich man to go, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean there's no such thing as wealthy Christians. It means there's a profound and difficult temptation towards self-sufficiency spiritually when you feel yourself to be self-sufficient physically. When you aren't in a place of need, but instead at a place of excess, Jesus says it's very difficult for people in that place of wealth in this world to realize their poverty in the life to come. It's very difficult to see yourself as needy when you don't feel physical need. Even think of James chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Listen to these verses. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field, For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, its beautiful appearance 
perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. That is so counter-culturally profound. I cannot think of any American self-help book I have ever read that would have had had lines like that in it. Let the brother of humble circumstances, let the person with very little boast that they're exalted, and let the rich boast that they're humiliated, that they're degraded. You see, the assumption of the modern world is that blessing always looks like prosperity. But here, James 1 tells you exactly the opposite. It says, actually, the brother of humble circumstances, the brother with little, is the one exalted over the person with much. Now, again, I'm not advocating for a poverty gospel here. What I'm pointing out is not, is not a call that everyone here should go sell everything they own, get poor, because being poor makes you spiritually rich. That's not necessarily connected. What I am warning against, though, is there's a profound temptation in excess to things that are spiritually dangerous. There's a temptation in having too much. And that temptation is something that we in the modern Western world are living inside of all the time, but we may not even know it. There was a saying, John D. Rockefeller at the time he died may have been the richest man on earth, and someone, it's reported to have been that someone went up to his accountant at his funeral and asked the question, how much did Mr. Rockefeller leave behind? To which the the accountant responded, well, all of it. He left all of it behind. Because James 1.10 holds true, the rich will pass away like a flower of the field. No matter how much money you have in your bank account, you cannot shield yourself away from death. And not only that, in this life, the rich person will have many activities that consume his attention. It's a bit parallel to 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says that he wishes all men could remain single like he he himself was because the married person finds his life complicated by different levels of pursuit, not able to be singularly or wholly devoted to the cause of Christ. Again, that's not saying marriage is evil, just like saying the rich person will have many troubles is not saying riches are necessarily evil. It means there's a, a complication to that additional state. Being rich provides complications. In the modern world and in the ancient world, and the Bible is clear, there is a difficulty and temptation to excess. Okay, so we've seen the history of the church, we've seen biblical wisdom, now let's just look at a practical case study of the next generation currently. Even I use the terminology in the opening kind of intro of this, that we're encountering a generation in America particularly whose life is consumed with first world problems. Anxiety, depression, isolation, hopelessness, joylessness. These are common mental and personal experiences that I'm finding young people reporting to me over and over and over again. Hannah, Beth, uh, Gilbert, and I, our salt company, one of our salt company associate directors, we were just talking on the podcast um, recently, and she noted, you know, one of the challenges with this generation is just profound mental and personal unhealth. But again, this is the generation that has grown up having access to more material and personal wealth than any generation that's ever lived. 
These people are profoundly unhealthy. Think of it. They report themselves as feeling joyless and hopeless. That's like living in Disneyland and hating it every day. How is that the case? Well, I think the best explanation is that first world problems are real problems because excess is a danger. An illustration of it might be to think of eating. Sugar is delicious, and it's amazing, and it tastes great. But too much sugar really will hurt you. Too much of that delightfully tasty sugar becomes a poison in your soul. It ruins your liver. It's going to, you know, in- increase inflammation, all of these sorts of things. I'm not getting into the dietary stuff, guys. I'm not a dietitian. But too much sugar will hurt you. It will dull your taste buds to a salad. It will make normally tasty, good, and healthy things taste less good because too much of a good thing hurts you. That really, in some ways, is my best definition of what a first world problem is. A first world problem is too much of a good thing. So, let's summarize it. Church history, Bible, and our current status of the next generation are all warning us about this. It's like a blinking red light. Warning, warning, warning. We are in the Western world encountering, for one of the first times ever in human history, look, the massive social problem that happens when almost everyone is drowning in excess. And I'm suggesting that in the West, it's having too much of a good thing that is the greater problem than having too little. This doesn't mean there's no such thing as poverty or that we shouldn't work to eliminate it. We absolutely should. It doesn't mean there aren't people you know that are struggling with too little. We should absolutely care for those people. It means that currently, if you look at the status of modernity, if you look at the status of the Western world, it's our excess more than our lack that is spiritually and personally dangerous. Okay, so what are we supposed to do here? Well, I want to give a couple of very simple things that you can do as an antidote. If you find yourself just overwhelmed by too much and too many things, the first thing I would would just call everyone to do is just to establish a daily sort of rule of life and habit of being with the Lord. Just simply starting every day waiting on God in quietness and stillness not surrounded by noise, not surrounded by buzzing devices, not surrounded by mind-numbing pleasure, but just quietly before the Lord starting every day, reminding yourself that your most important possessions are not found in this life, but in the fact that you are now loved by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, knowing who you are, daily time with God, is going to be the singular most important antidote you can get to the disease of excess. The second thing that I would do is just suggest to you that we need to have a profound shift in our minds away from seeing pleasure as the goal of life to seeing peace and satisfaction as the goal of life. One of the temptations in the modern world, the disease of excess, is to exchange pleasure with peace, almost to mistake the two, to think that what I need to do is I need to have a more happy life, like joyful pleasure life. I need to feel more good things. There is a vast difference between pleasure and peace. 
between I, peace, I'm calling that soul level satisfaction. And you need to have a mind shift that's different about that. I, I'm just pointing that out to say, you have to change your thinking, renew your mind to change your life. And one way to just is just to be aware, to ask yourself, is the fact that I'm not feeling good, that I feel hopeless or joyless, is that because I'm actually mistaking pleasure for peace? Now, how do you pursue peace? I give you the core one, pursuing time with God away from the pleasures of life. But one way you pursue peace over pleasure is just to identify the difference between the two. What is soul-level peace like? Let me give you a tool that Christians have used to help to counteract this disease of too much. Christians through the centuries have used the tool of fasting. So, quiet time with God, and then the second major, to- the, the second major tool is, is fasting. So, fasting, many people use fasting um, from food. Just taking a break from the consumption of food to remind yourself that you don't live by simply eating bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that God gives life and breath and every good thing. To kind of reset your body and your soul and your spirit to remember that you are a dependent creature on God. So if you have never done fasting before, start with just skipping one meal to pray. You know, follow your doctor's orders. I'm not a doctor. I'm not advocating for this from a medicinal angle. I'm just simply saying spiritually, you need to go without things to know you don't need them. One of the most important things you can do is deny yourself a a pleasure that you could have to cultivate a sense of dependence and need. So if you've never tried fasting, try skipping a meal. Once you do that for a couple weeks, on pick a day of the week where you forego eating lunch, for instance, in order to spend that time in prayer. See what that does to your soul over time. Fasting, okay? We've talked about daily quiet time. We're talking about fasting. The third discipline that I'm going to put forward to you is you, you have fasting where you skip a meal. Try fasting for a day. Find someone who's fasted before and talk to them about their experience. Uh, even in fasting, I've talked about food. You do a technology fast. Man, this has been so helpful for me, is just turning off the phone for periods of time. Just turn it off. Live without your phone. Fasting from technology, that can help to counteract the constant flow of too much. Um, one other discipline that I'll point out is just simply the discipline of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude disciplines just look like setting aside a period of time where you don't um, actively listen to outside noise or have conversation. That silence and solitude. So silence is no outside noise. Solitude is away from people and you're not talking to people. So you could do this, try this in a beautiful day at a park outside. So as the weather changes in the Midwest, take an afternoon and simply walk and do not talk to anyone else. Silence and solitude. It's, it's resetting kind of the, the discipline of your soul. See, even here, I'm literally recording a thing on silence and solitude. My computer beeped at me. You're going to have to actually get away from these things. Turn these noises off in order to fight them. So three spiritual disciplines, quiet time, fasting, 
silence and solitude, and a mental mindset shift where you you kind of grasp that there's a vast difference between peaceful soul-level satisfaction and sugary high pleasures. Why do we need all of this? Well, because the modern world, the book of Ecclesiastes, biblical wisdom, are, are basically saying this, you can get all the pleasure you like and have no peace. To have a meaningless sort of existence, what the writer of Ecclesiastes calls Hevel. You, you can live a life full of pleasure and have no peace, no purpose, no settledness of soul. And if anything right now, friends, that's what's happening in the modern world. We're living in the midst of the disease of too much. So if that disease is all around you, I'm just trying to give you just regular reminders on this Equip podcast that you need to take a break from that noise to get your soul quiet with God. So step toward one of those three disciplines this week. Quiet time with God daily in the Word, fasting of some sort, and a practice of silence and solitude. And see what that can do to help reset your soul and guard you against that disease of too much. <music>